our series is the Word, and this is the last part. We've been studying Psalm 119, which just happens to be the longest chapter in your Bible. And as you already know, it was written by an anonymous psalmist. We're not sure exactly who or exactly when he wrote. But he obviously had a profound appreciation for and a passionate desire for the Word of God. It's quite remarkable when you think that this man didn't even have a complete Old Testament, let alone the complete Bible that you have, Old and New Testament. And he addresses his words directly to the Lord. This is kind of a combination of praise and prayer and everything in between. What I love about this writer who penned this chapter in your Bible is that He's not satisfied to just have the word in his house or in his hand or even in his head. He is determined that the word of the Lord is going to be in his heart. And uh, nearly every verse in this lengthy chapter contains a direct mention of the word of God. And it's a beautiful acrostic poem. Psalm 119 is literally the word of God talking about the word of God. And through 176 verses, he uses eight different major words to describe the scriptures. Law, judgments, testimonies, precepts, commandments, statutes, the way, and of course the word. And the structure that we've looked at already, the structure of this chapter, this psalm, is amazing because the author organizes it in such a way and the spirit inspires it in such a way that it's 22 sections, eight verses or eight lines each. And in those 22 sections, each line begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so if you've got a King James Bible over each section of this psalm, you will see uh, a Hebrew letter. And that's what we've been looking at in this series. It's been an unusual series. We usually don't study too much in Hebrew around here. But uh, we've been doing it, and it's been very, very inspirational to me, and I hope to you. Every Hebrew letter is based on a symbol. Hebrew was, of course, the original language that God revealed himself through to humanity. And every Hebrew letter is based on a symbol. Every Hebrew letter has an image associated with it. Every Hebrew letter even has a numerical value associated with it. And once you know all of that and you take a little closer look, Psalm 119 takes on a whole new meaning. Two weeks ago, we covered the first seven sections, the first seven letters. Remember, Hebrew reads from right to left, the reverse of English. We talked about Aleph, the first letter of the alphabet. It's depicted by an ox because the Word of God is so strong that it can carry you and your heavy burdens. The second letter, Beit is depicted by a house, and the word gives us directions to join God's great household of faith and make heaven our eternal home. The third letter, Gimel, is depicted by a camel, because the person who learns to drink deeply from the word of God can endure the dry and thirsty valleys and dry places of life. The fourth letter, Dalit, is depicted by a door because the person who walks according to the word of God, God opens doors that no man can shut and he shuts doors that no man can open. It gives God's direction. The fifth letter, Hey, I love that letter. Uh, we found out a little bit more about that letter last week. Uh, the fifth letter, Hey, is depicted by a window. Like we would look through a window to see outside the word, when we look through it, it reveals God to us and we get to behold his glory. The sixth letter, Vav, is depicted by a nail. Because again, the word is so strong, you can hang your life and your whole eternity on its promises. And the seventh letter, Zion, is like a sword. Because the word is the sword of the spirit. It is a powerful weapon against the enemy. Last week, we covered the next eight sections of Psalm 119. We talked about the eighth letter, Hate which is depicted by a fence because the word puts boundaries around us, not to hurt us or burden us or hem us in, but to keep evil and temptation out. The ninth letter is tet. It's depicted unusually by a snake, but this is the word striking quickly, injecting conviction in our lives. And the word, by the way, is an antidote to the venom of sin. The tenth letter, also a very wonderful letter. It's Yud. 
It's the smallest little letter in the Hebrew alphabet depicted by a hand. And the word like this tiny little letter, it completes its work in us like a little small seed would grow when scattered by the hand of a sower. The 11th letter, Kaf, is depicted by a wing because the person who obeys God's word, you're under the shadow of his covenant. The next letter, Lamet, is depicted by a staff, a shepherd's staff, because the word corrects us, prods us out of lethargy, it spurs us into action. The 13th letter is Mem, it's depicted by water, because this word is a mighty force of moving, cleansing water. Uh, Paul talked about it, we are cleansed by the washing of water by the word. The next letter is Nun, and it's depicted by a fish because this word calls us to be fishers of men, continually spreading out the nets of our witness. And finally, the last letter we talked about, Samik, is depicted by a support, like you would build a support, a V-shaped rod to support the branch of a tree. The word, this word, God's word, upholds us and supports us and props us up with its promises. Has anybody ever walked through something where you just felt like the word was about the only thing you had for support, but you got through it because you trusted in the word of the Lord? Well, that's what he's talking about. Now, I want to mention this one final time in our series. On one hand, the Word of God is shallow. You read this Bible with an open heart and an open mind, you will find the message of salvation. It's right on the surface. Isaiah talked about it. He said, it's going to be a way, the way of holiness. The unclean can't pass over it, but... It's for those wayfaring men, wandering people, even though they're fools, even though they're not maybe the sharpest knife in the drawer. They, they will not err therein because the Bible is shallow. But on the other hand, the Word of God is so deep that you could study it for a whole lifetime and never exhaust its revelation. The Bible is like a gold mine. You dig treasure out of it the more you read it and study it. And that's what we've been trying to do in this midweek series. Proverbs says it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. God conceals all kinds of wonderful little mysteries and revelations and treasures in his word. But it is the honor of kings to search out a matter. That's why we do Bible study in the first place. We're searching out the wonderful truths of the Word of God. And so tonight, without any further delay, we want to jump right into the last seven sections of the Word of God, uh, of Psalm 119, rather. Uh, we, we want to begin at verse 121 with a Hebrew letter that is called Ain. Everyone say Ain. And so this letter heads over these next eight verses. It is depicted by an eye because the Word of God allows us to see to understand. It's more than just a glance. It's actually seeing to comprehend. It's to understand good and evil. We see good and evil. Why? So we can choose good and choose God. The rabbis teach that this two-pronged letter represents your two eyes that are connected by an optic nerve to your brain. And therefore, an means more than just seeing or looking. It represents understanding with your mind and choosing with your will. This is why Jesus said the light of the body is the eye. And he said the eye can either be good or evil. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount. Moses met God face to face, which in Hebrew is literally translated eye to eye. Moses met God eye to eye. Now, we still use both of those expressions today, don't we? We've been talking about being able to have face-to-face -face meetings for a long time now in this pandemic year. And we also, when we're talking about agreement, we say they see things eye-to-eye. -eye. So we still use those expressions. Here's what's significant. When you understand, when you clearly see, when you understand God's motives behind all of his commandments, then you willingly choose to submit to his methods in your life. 
Paul prayed this for his friends in Ephesus. I'm praying that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened so you can understand just who you are in Christ. And really the psalmist here is praying for the very same thing. Verse 123, mine eyes fail. They long for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. He prays in verse 125, give me understanding. The eye is about comprehending and understanding. He prays in verse 128, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and I hate every false way. He said, I have a predetermined decision when it comes to your word, God. I just assume this is all right and anything that contradicts it is totally wrong. So what the psalmist is praying, I want to see, I want to understand what you are doing in my life because I always want to make a choice to walk in your word, God. The word oppressors and oppress make their first appearance in Psalm 119 here in this section, in verse 121 and 122. This man, although he loves the word of God, he loves God, God loves him, but he still has to deal with people who mock and criticize and even persecute him because of his allegiance to the word of God. When he prays in verse 122, "'Be surety for thy servant,' He's expressing his absolute confidence in God. In the Old Testament, a person became surety when they guaranteed somebody else's debt. They pledged, if they default, I'll pay their debt. If they default, I'll fulfill their promise. And that's why in the Old Testament, it's forbidden. You can read it in the book of Proverbs. Don't be surety for anybody else's debt. Don't let them borrow money and sign it off to you and you'll guarantee it and then they skip town and off they go and you're left holding the bag. And that's still good advice today, by the way. Just that's free. Has nothing to do with Psalm 119. But the psalmist says, God, I'm praying that you would be surety for your servant. You see, the reason the Bible says don't you be a guarantee for somebody else's bad debt is because you could end up with a greater financial burden than you could possibly carry. But in the New Testament, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was made a surety of a better testament. He has all the resources of heaven to guarantee our debt. So he's not afraid. This is so amazing. Jesus isn't afraid that you might make a mistake or fail or fall or sin tomorrow. He already has enough resources in heaven to extend mercy and forgive you and cleanse you with his blood and get you back on your feet. He already knew you'd make the mistake next week before you even get to next week. So you don't have to worry about it. If you'll repent, he is the surety of a better testament. God can handle any situation you throw at him, even when it looks like the world or worldliness are winning right now all around you. I love this verse, verse 126. He says, he's praying, it is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. People are ignoring your word all around me, God. Hey, Lord, it's time for you to work. You ever prayed that? God, I've had just about all I can take of this. It's time for you to work. Anybody got a situation in your family or in your life? You know what? That's a good prayer to to just put a bookmark in. Lord, it's time for you to work. He's praying, defend us, Lord. Defend your people. Vindicate us. Show us your glory. It's amazing. The next letter in Psalm 119, the next section is headed by the letter pay. Everyone say pay. And this letter is depicted by a mouth because the word speaks God's commandments to us. The word speaks God's promises to us. And if we get the word in us, then we can speak God's promises and we can speak of God's goodness to others. And this man, you know, we've been in this for a hundred and some verses. This man loves the word of God. Verse 129, thy testimonies are wonderful. 
Verse 131, look at that. His mouth is hanging open, panting, just longing for God's commandments. I don't know about you. I wonder, do we ever get that thirsty, that hungry for a word from God? Job said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. It begs the question, do you ever have moments where your mouth almost hangs open in awe of his word and in awe of his plan? It's amazing. We had one of those moments last week in this Bible study. You remember when we got talking about that inscription over the cross and how the word spoke at the crucifixion? That's a moment when your mouth just hangs open in awe of the word. God's word is so powerful. You know this verse. We say it all the time. Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent his word and healed them. The word can do the miraculous. When God speaks, it's over for the devil. The devil cannot compete with a word from God. And so this psalmist declares a beautiful verse here. This is worth memorizing. Verse 130. The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple. The word entrance there literally means unfolding or opening up like you'd open a book or like a flower would open its petals to the sun. That's what we try to do in preaching and teaching. We want the entrance of the word to bring light. So we open up the word. We try to unfold the word. And the Bible isn't meant to be complicated. You don't need to study Hebrew or Greek or anything else to get the message of the Bible. We've already covered this. The Bible is a simple book, and yes, it's for simple people. Simple in the Bible is not an insult. Simple means that you just don't have any experience, perhaps, with God, or you don't have any experience with that particular book of the Bible or chapter. Simple just means lacking experience. It's not an insult. The Bible is a simple book so that simple people can get its message. Let me give you an, a, a little statistic here. Classical Greek, the New Testament was written in that. Classical Greek has a vocabulary of almost 100,000 words. But the Greek New Testament uses only 6,000 words to give us its message. Today, the English language now has a vocabulary of more than a million words. And for some of you, you know a family member that has used most of them. A million words in English. But it only took 6,000 of those million words to translate the King James Version of the Holy Scripture. That's amazing. God's word isn't meant to be complicated or on the high shelf or out of reach. One person said the Bible is so deep that theologians can never touch bottom, but it's so shallow that even a babe in Christ can't drown. I love that quote. My favorite verse, and everybody's got favorite verses, but they gave me the microphone. My favorite verse in all of Psalm 119 is in this section, verse 133. I've written this in so many Bibles when a young person or a Bible school student would ask me to sign their Bible. That's a thing now, I guess. Verse 133. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. There's a song by that title called Order My Steps. You should look it up. It's a beautiful choir song. I sing that. I pray that. I read that. I think about that. Order my steps in thy word and let not any iniquity have dominion over me. In the Bible, the word sin refers to missing the mark or falling short. And we know from the gospel that all have sinned. So we all have a sin problem, every one of us. But transgression is another word, and it refers to the specific act of breaking God's commandments. We all fall short. We all come short by our nature. We all miss the mark because we're just human. But there's a difference between missing the mark because of a sinful nature and actually committing sinful actions. That's transgression. 
But out of sin or iniquity or transgression, iniquity is the most dangerous. Because iniquity refers to the intentional twisting of God's standards. It refers to a conscious decision to proceed without repentance. You know it's wrong. You know it doesn't please God. You know you're contradicting his word. But you choose to proceed without any thought of repentance. And that's why I'm scared of iniquity. I don't want iniquity, that thoughtless just running through life, ignoring the word of God, making excuses, not repenting. I don't want iniquity to have dominion over me. Dominion simply means rule or conquest. It means subjugation. I don't want iniquity to have dominion over me. And you know what else? I don't want man to have dominion over me either. Verse 134, he says, deliver me from the oppression of man. I've got to walk in this word if I want to walk in true liberty. I have to. And that's why this man is so upset when other people won't listen to what God speaks through his word. Look at verse 136. Rivers of water run down my eyes because they keep not thy law. I'm distraught. I'm distressed because so many people aren't keeping the law of God. You see, blessing and burden, joy and affliction, love and hate, awe and anguish, they can all dwell simultaneously in your heart. You can be happy about one thing and upset about something else at the same time. You know you can do that. Well, this is what the psalmist is doing. I'm so thrilled about the Word of God, but I'm so upset that people all around me ignore it, and so he's weeping. Rivers of water are running from his eyes. It begs a question. Have you ever shed a tear because somebody you know, somebody in your family is neglecting the word of God, is living outside of the word of God? This man was an Old Testament man, but he had that experience when he saw people that didn't have the, 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 the will, didn't have the love, didn't have the submission to the word of God. He wept over it. He prays for deliverance. Verse 132, he said, I want you to deliver me as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. God, I want you to deliver me like you used to deliver the elders. I want you to deliver me like you used to deliver the pioneers. I want you to deliver me like you delivered people in past generations. That's how I want you to deliver me. My goodness, I got some prayers like that. I've read too many stories and heard too many testimonies and had too many miracles passed down from the elders. That's one of my prayers. God, I want you to deliver us. I want you to show us your glory like you used to do for the elders, like you used to do in those days for those that love thy name. Next letter of the Hebrew alphabet in the next section is Sadhi. Everyone say Sadhi. And this letter is depicted by a fish hook because it's this Bible that hooks us with conviction and pulls us toward God's righteousness. Aren't you glad that the word of God one day convicted you and pulled you into the kingdom of God? Anybody glad about that tonight? Do you realize just how privileged you are? I, I did a little calculation on, the, the, on my, my calculator on my phone today. As I teach you tonight, our world's population is approaching 7.9 billion people. And yet here you are, sitting in an apostolic church, saved from sin, delivered from hell, and on your way to heaven. Do you have any comprehension of what an absolute blessing and honor and privilege that is? You see, there are only 2.4 billion Christians in the whole world today. 30% of the earth's population calls themselves Christian 
So there's a 70% chance right there that you could have been born into a family of another faith, into a family of a false religion, or into a family with no faith at all. That's 70% that you shouldn't be here. Then there's only 600 million Pentecostal Christians in the world. So if there's only 600 million Pentecostal Christians of every breed and branch and stripe and persuasion, there's a 92.4% chance that you should have never received the baptism of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. I'm so glad I'm in the smaller percentage on that one because I thank God for the power of the Holy Ghost. So there's only 2.4 billion Christians. There's only 600 million Pentecostal Christians. And there's only 24 million oneness Pentecostal Christians in the world. That means there's a 99.7% chance that you might have never had the privilege of being baptized in the only saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. Do you understand just how blessed you really are? And that tells me a couple of things. It not only tells me how blessed I am and how thankful I should be and how excited I should be about being in church. It tells me, church, we still got a lot of work to do in this world before Jesus comes. And the only way we're going to do it is if we pray and have a supernatural move of God. We got good plans. Plans won't do it. We got nice buildings. Buildings won't do it. We got good programs. Programs won't do it. The people of God have got to call on God. And we've got to have a supernatural move of the Holy Ghost. I wish you'd give me not a Bible study amen, but a Sunday night amen on that one. We have a huge job to do, but we've got a God who's more massive than any need in this world. But I just want to stop and say, I'm so thankful that God reached down out of 7.9 billion people and he saved me. That's a privilege and an honor. But you think about it. <laughs> the only reason you're saved, the only reason you're so blessed is this Word of God. It was preached to you. It was taught to you. And it hooked you. It convicted you. It captured you. And then it changed you. The writer of Hebrews says the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It can divide asunder between soul and spirit. That's how conviction happens. You start thinking with your heart instead of with your head. So I thank God for the gospel. And I thank God for the truth of His Word. I thank God for this Bible that I get to read and study and love. And this psalmist does too. He doesn't have the whole Bible like you and I do, but he's thankful for what he does have. Verse 137, the word is upright. Verse 138, the word is righteous and very faithful. Verse 140, the word is very pure. Verse 144, the word is everlasting. This psalmist in verse 142, he says, thy law is the truth. Not a truth, not some truth. Thy law is the truth truth. He says in 143, thy commandments are my delights. And that's why he gets so upset when he sees those who once knew the word, but they've wandered from it. They've strayed from it. They've discarded it and disregarded it. They've forgotten it. The hook of God's word no longer convicts them. And in verse 141, he says, I'm small and despised in their eyes. They despise people who still obey the word of God. They oppose what they once embraced. And so he says in verse 139, My zeal has consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. But he says, that's not me, God. I want your word. I'm open to your word. I submit to your word. Verse 144, give me understanding and I shall live. The next section is headed off with a letter that sounds like what you sound like when you got something going on. Everyone say cough. 
Yeah, that's what you do. <coughs> Cough. And it actually makes that sound in Hebrew words. The word Kof, or the letter Kof, it, it is actually depicted by your back. Everyone say, your back. The word teaches us, the Bible teaches us, that the back, the end of faithfulness, the, the end of obeying God, the end of living for God, it teaches us about the end or the back of faithfulness. It teaches us about the reward of living a holy, godly life. This letter, Kof, it was used during the time of the temple. And it marked, if you saw this letter on a container, you knew that container had something sacred in it. This letter was used to mark any sacred object because it is the first letter in the Hebrew word kodesh, which means holy. Kodesh, kodeshu, holy of holies. So this letter, kof, it, it, it literally marked anything that was set apart, separate, distinct, or different. And that's the significance. You see, it is the end goal of the Lord to make every one of you into his image. That's why when we baptized you, we didn't hold you under and wait till the bubble stopped and send you directly to heaven. You're still here. You know why? Because God wants to make you into his image. And holiness, godliness, righteousness is the back. It is the end of living for God. In the Hebrew language, many words that are describing direction or orientation, they're actually derived from parts of the human body. If you say at the head, that signifies the first, the beginning, the top, something that's supreme. If you say at the hand, that signifies that you're standing in someone's authority. If you say at the feet, that signifies submission or worship. If you say at the face, that's fellowship or friendship. But if you say at the back, that means the after effects, the consequences, the final outcome of something. You see, from our limited human vantage point, we can't see the back of our decisions. Just like you can't see the back of somebody that's walking toward you, you can't see the back. You can't see the back or the end or the outcome or the consequence of your decision. That's why the Word of God is so powerful and precious. It can give you wisdom that you don't have access to as a human being. There's a beautiful, powerful scripture, but kind of a scary one in the book of Proverbs. Chapter 16, verse 25 in Proverbs. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's the Hebrew word akarith, end or back. It literally is the back of those ways is the, is the back of death, the way of death. And, and so what God is saying in his word is I see the whole picture. I know what will happen tomorrow. I see future consequences. I see the end from the beginning. You don't. So you can embark on a road. You can take a turn. You can choose an option. You can make a decision that the back of it, the end of it, is going to result in death. Maybe physical death, maybe terrible trial and trauma, or maybe even eternal death. That's why the word is so important. Because when you can't see the back of what you're deciding, the word can see the back of what you're deciding. And that's why we need to make a choice, every one of us, to obey what the Bible says, even when we don't always understand why God asked us to do it that way. If you just make that decision in your life, if the Word asks me to do it, if the Word tells me to do it, I'm going to obey the Word. If you make that decision, the Word will look after the back of everything that you're facing. And this is what this psalmist has determined. Verse 145, I will keep thy statutes. Verse 146, I shall keep thy testimonies. Verse 151, all thy commandments are truth. So he's determined, I'm just going to do it if the word says it. And again, he's distressed over those in his life. Here's what he says about them. You maybe have people like this in your life. They want to be near to him, 
but they're far from God. Look at this, verse 150. They draw nigh, they come close to me that follow after mischief. They are far from thy law. He's upset about that. They want to be close to me, God, but they don't want to be close to you. And I'm upset about that because my desire is to have everybody that's close to me grow close to God. And he knows that the only way to prevent that, that distance from the word of God, the only way to prevent that from happening in his own heart is prayer. And that's why he says that he starts praying when he wakes up and he doesn't stop praying until he goes to sleep. Verse 147 and 148, he said, I prevent the dawning of the morning, and I prevent the night watches. Prevent means to come before or, or to begin before. He said, I started praying before the, the dawn broke. I started praying sometime in the middle of the night when I woke up out of sleep. Now, listen carefully. It's not that he prays without stopping. That's physically impossible. you got to get some rest sometimes. It's not that he prays without stopping. It's that he never stops praying. He's just always got that receiver off the hook, ready to talk to God. That's what Paul means when he says, pray without ceasing in 1 Thessalonians 5. This psalmist is like the early church leaders. The Bible says in Acts 6, they gave themselves to prayer and the word. This psalmist is like Nehemiah, Jesus, Paul, Peter, and others who taught us, we get this phrase from them, watch and pray. Why does the psalmist want us, why does he decide for himself, I'm going to watch and pray? It's because he wants the back of his journey, the end of his life, to be as good as right now in his life. If you want the end of your journey to end well, you need to follow the word of God very closely. Moving right along, this is the Hebrew letter resh. Everyone say resh. And Raish is depicted by the head. See, there's the human body. It feeds into these letters. The word is like head. We just talked about that. Head signifies the first, the beginning, the top, the supreme. So the word is our highest authority. And the word shows us the protection of submission. At the end of the day, you alone have to decide who and what you are going to submit to. It's either going to be submitting to the world and its lies, or it's going to be submitting to God and his truth. Solomon said in Proverbs 29, The fear of man bringeth a snare, but whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. Whoever and whatever you look to for approval, acceptance, and authority, that person or that idea or that philosophy or that thing gets to control your life because you're getting your approval, your acceptance, and your authority from there. And that's why this psalmist unashamedly declares that God's word is the greatest authority that I submit to. We already mentioned head signifies supreme, first, beginning, top. This is the place of the word of God in the life of the believer. The word of God is your highest authority. Now I know that God has instituted a structure of headship in the church, in the home, in the workplace, in society, in our relationships. We read about that in Ephesians 5. There's always great blessing and covering and protection and power when we follow God's plan and we learn not to puff up in rebellion and pride, but to humbly submit. And the psalmist knows this. And so he submits to spiritual leaders because he's ultimately submitting to the word of God. As he starts to move toward the end of this lengthy chapter, this lengthy poem for him. This writer is obviously troubled by his trials. He says in verse 158, he's grieved by those who oppose his submission to the word. If you really stake your claim on this Bible, can I just tell you, in our world today, you're going to get opposition, raised eyebrows, and a little bit of mockery. You're going to. But this psalmist he said, I'm grieved by that. He calls these people. He just calls them out. In verse 155, he says they're wicked. 
158, he says they're transgressors. 157, he says they're persecutors and enemies. He doesn't pull his punches. But even in the face of such opposition, his determination is unwavering. Verse 157, yet do I not decline from thy testimonies. They push me, but I refuse to back off or back down. They oppose me, they mock me, but I refuse to give up my submission to the word of God. Three times in this section, he prays, quicken me. Verse 154, 56, and 59. He prays, quicken me. That means revive me. But he knows that that prayer, you watch, it's always quicken me according to. Quicken me according to thy word. Revive me according to thy word. He knows that no prayer works unless it's a prayer grounded in the word of God. He's, he actually says to God in verse 159, Consider, God, how I love thy precepts. You know, God, I'm one of the good guys. I'm on your team. I'm one of your people. Consider how I love thy precepts. And he ends this section telling us exactly why the word of God is his highest authority. Here's what he says, last verse of this section. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Science textbooks come and go. Fads and fashions fade away. But the word of God that your salvation is built upon, that your eternity is built upon, it endures forever. <laughs> now this next letter, um, I, I, I've tried to rush a little bit. Maybe you think I was dragging it out, but I was trying to move really fast here because I want to spend a couple of minutes on this letter. This, the 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet, is a high and holy letter. You pronounce it sheen. Everyone say sheen. And sheen, that letter is depicted, the image associated with it is a rock. Because the word is our stability and our shelter. And the word is like a rock. It can destroy the power of sin in our lives. It can crush it out. Many times in the Bible, the Lord is called our rock, our shelter, our shield, and our fortress. But because he reveals himself to us through his word, let me tell you, this word is also my rock, my shelter, my shield, and my fortress. I thank God for this Bible. This Bible kept me through my teenage years. This Bible has been with me through the ups and downs of adult life. This Bible is amazing. This Bible, I can take it to the bank and trust it every single time. It's my rock, just like the Lord is my rock, because this is how he reveals himself. And that's the reason for the passion of this writer. Verse 161, beautiful, he says, My heart standeth in awe of thy word. I have the best job in the world. You precious people allow me to take time and study the word of God and then bring it to you. I'm just like your kid in the toy aisle at Walmart. Look at this, look at this, look at this. I love it. This guy says, My heart standeth in awe. Of thy word. He says in verse 162, he's put his mining gear on. I rejoice at thy word as one that findeth great spoil. He says in verse 164, thy law do I love. He's in love with the word of God. I hope you are. It'll sustain you and keep you. It's a rock and a shield and a fortress. It's amazing. He says in verse 164, seven times a day, do I praise thee? Oh, that's the new prayer schedule, is it, Pastor? Seven times a day do I praise thee. No, he's referring to something else. You see, a devoted Jew would praise God intentionally, schedule it three times a day. Psalm 55 verse 17 talks about morning, noon, and night. Daniel 6 and 10 tells us that Daniel, a devout Jew, he prayed three times a day. But when this guy says... 
Seven times a day do I praise thee. It's not that he's trying to one-up the prophet Daniel. The prophet Daniel hasn't even lived yet, as best we know. But the number seven in Scripture, you remember this, seven means going beyond what is expected. That's why Jesus told Peter, "Uh uh-uh, don't forgive him seven times, but 70 times seven. It's a multiplicity of sevens. You're going beyond what is expected. And that's what this man says. Seven times a day. It just kind of pops out of my mouth every once in a while. It just wells up in my heart. It almost comes up in my throat like a lump, and I'm about ready to cry seven times a day, just over and over again. I want to praise you, God, because of your word. He does this because he knows the word is his rock and his security. I love this verse, verse 165. Great peace have they which love thy law. And nothing shall offend them. If you're offended about someone, something, fall in love with the scripture. It'll prevent you from getting offended. It really will. Now, here's where I want to go tonight. We're we're getting close to the end here. Like so many other places in this psalm, there's even more beauty if we just take a moment and just dig a little below the surface. You see, that letter that's at the beginning of each one of the eight verses in this section, the sheen stands high among all the Hebrew letters in the alphabet because the sheen represents not one, but two Old Testament names of God. Shaddai, which is God Almighty, the all-sufficient one, the unlimited one, Shaddai. And it also represents another name, Shalom, peace or wholeness, and that's what God brings into our life. In the Jewish culture, to this day, you can see it anywhere in any orthodox part of Jerusalem or any other place in Israel, this letter appears on the mezuzah, a little cylinder box that uh, hangs on every door frame in Israel in the orthodox parts. And inside that little box with that letter, that three-pronged letter on it, There's a little scroll that contains the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And the reason they put it in a little cylinder and put it in that decorative box and put it on the door frame and they touch it and kiss their fingers as they walk in and out of that door. The reason they do that is Deuteronomy 6 and 9, which tells them to put this on the doorpost of their house. The old Hasidic rabbis, they teach us something additional. They say that the sheen looks like a picture of a man or woman in the proper position for prayer and worship. The middle prong of the letter represents the man's head, while the outer two prongs represent his hands raised heavenward. Which brings me to this verse in the Old Testament. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand. He got one young man under either side. He was so tired. When Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But when he got tired, he let down his hand. Amalek prevailed. That's why those two young men got one under either arm. What was happening there is that as long as Moses held his arms up heavenward, He was casting the shadow of the name of God from the mountain onto the battlefield below. And so that's why Scripture says all kinds of things like some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Let me say something to you Pentecostal Christians, something to you apostolic people. There's something more going on when you lift up your hands than just a Pentecostal style of doing church. When you lift up your hands, your physical being is saying, I invoke the name of God in my body. Then when you open your mouth and you call on the name of Jesus, you're invoking the name of God with your words. When you get down in water in the name of Jesus, you're invoking the name of God over your life. When you put a bunch of Jesus' name people in a room and they lift up their hands, look out. Fireworks are about ready to go off in 
in the spirit. That's what happened on that Old Testament battlefield up on that mountain. Oh, my goodness. If we were in school, they'd do a fire drill. Let's do a fire drill. Everybody lift up your hands and call on the name of the Lord. That brings down heavenly fire. That brings down Holy Ghost fire. Even my hands can worship God. Even my posture can invoke the name of the Lord. Even my being can call on the name of the Lord. Ha, <laughs> ha, whoa. You feel the difference when you do it. It's like it clears out the cobwebs and just kind of cleans up the atmosphere when you exalt the name of the Lord God. And you can do it just by lifting up your hands. <laughs> My goodness. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You feel it. As soon as you do it, it liberates something. <laughs> but it's even... Better than that. Because the sheen, this high and holy letter, this 21st letter of the Hebrew alphabet is also seen in the rocks, in the mountains that surround the ancient city of Jerusalem. Pulled up this map and used a little highlighter today for you. If you look at this map of Jerusalem, a topographical map, the left prong is the Hinnom Valley. The middle prong is the Tyropean Valley, or they call it the Cheesemakers Valley. Runs right up alongside of the Temple Mount. And the right prong is the Kidron Valley. God chose the city of Jerusalem as the place to put his name. That's what he said in the Bible. So God literally took this letter that represents not one but two names of God. He took this three-pronged letter, the sheen, and literally carved his initial in the city of Jerusalem. Here's what he said. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house, Solomon, this temple that you're building on the top of Jerusalem. I've sanctified it that my name may be there forever and my eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. That's why he said to Solomon, I'm going to watch this place. I'm going to be listening for the prayers that come from this place. And here's what he told Solomon. He he said, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray. He said, I'm going to be listening for what comes from the place where I put my name. He carved his name in the topography of the city of Jerusalem. Now, that's amazing to me. But it gets one better than that. Because those old rabbis teach us, and some of you are in the medical profession, and you might know this already. That that high and holy letter that represents not one but two names of God, it can be seen inside of you. It's seen in the human heart, at the base of the human heart. You can see the sheen in the space that divides the left and the right ventricles. I'm going to need somebody at the back to push that to the next slide. It, it literally shows, look at the bottom of that cross-section of the human heart. It literally shows up in your human heart. God carved his initials on you while you were being formed in your mother's womb. You were not created to be a container for sin and shame, bondage and addiction, perversion. You were not created for that. You were created to be a chosen vessel filled with God's Spirit. That's His will for everybody. That's why we got to preach this and teach this and reach with this because it's not His will that any should perish. And this is why the psalmist said, you remember from one of our early lessons, I want to hide your word in my heart that I will not sin against thee. i got to get your word in my heart because my heart wasn't, wasn't created to be a container for sin. It was created to be a container for your spirit. You see, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 16, the author there said, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws, not on tables of stone, I will put my laws into their hearts 
and in their minds will I write them. So Jesus declares this emphatically, brothers and sisters. You see, this letter is represented by a rock. Either you fall on the rock and let it break you. That's repentance. That's what Jesus said. Or someday in judgment, the rock will fall on you. And Jesus said, it'll grind you to powder. Better to fall on the rock today. Better to be broken by the rock today than to face judgment. Jesus is our rock and his word is our rock. So if I could give you any advice, it would be get yourself to the rock today and stay there. And finally, the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is a little letter called Tav. Everyone say Tav. This is the final letter, the 22nd letter. We've made it all the way through. And this letter is depicted by something quite remarkable. It's depicted by a cross. You see, the word of God reveals salvation to us. And it marks us. Everyone say it marks us as his covenant people. Now, maybe you've asked this question as we've been walking through this series. Beverly asked me this question sometime during the last week. As we've walked through Psalm 119, maybe you've thought, well, in the Hebrew alphabet, Pastor, you've been telling us about every letter is associated with an image. How do we know which image is associated with which letter? Like, how do they come up with that? That's a great question. And the answer is that ancient Hebrew was originally written in what they call pictographs. Think like Egyptian hieroglyphics, little symbols, little pictures. For example, in the Hebrew language, the first letter, Aleph, we say it represents an ox. It's, it's pictured by an ox. Well, the reason is that originally, before we had the modern Aleph in the small circle, we had the original letter Aleph, a pictogram from thousands of years ago, and it actually looked like the head of an ox. Now, when you look at the very last letter, Tav, in the Hebrew alphabet, when I say it's represented by a cross, that's because the very original form of the letter Tav looked like that. It's absolutely amazing. It was a way that a person could, we would say they made their mark. We would say today sign with an X, but back then they would sign that way with a cross, with a mark. It was a way they could enter a covenant or they could sign a legal document. And I think all of you are biblically astute enough to know exactly where we're going on this last letter. But I would say first, when we talk about mark, it's a wonderful thing to mark your Bible. I hope you've got a Bible that you cherish, and I hope you write in it and underline things in it and circle things in it or maybe highlight it. I hope you do that. I, I, I love these things. I use them every day. But this does not take the place of a Bible that you can cry over and weep over and write in and cherish. It doesn't take the place of that. Not at all. And so you need a Bible. And you need to mark in your Bible. And make your Bible your Bible. But, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. While it is wonderful to mark in your Bible, it's a much more wonderful thing to let your Bible mark in you. To let your Bible convict you and direct you and speak to you. Now, this psalmist has been going. You think pastor's long-winded. This guy has been writing for 176 verses. But he hasn't lost any of his passion for the word of God despite the length of his writing. He says in verse 172, My tongue shall speak of thy word. 174, Thy law is my delight. Verse 169, Give me understanding according to thy word. And verse 170, Deliver me according to thy word. God, either give me understanding or deliver me. God, either show me why I'm here or get me out of here. That's how he talks to God. He prays to God. No matter how much he loves this word, he knows that he's still a sinful human being. And he senses it. And you sense it sometimes too. I certainly do. That although I love God and I love his word, there are moments that I feel quite distant from God. Like I can't reach him. 
like there's just too much distance between his holiness and my sinfulness. And that's why he prays in verse 169, let my cry come near before thee. Verse 170, let my supplication come before thee. Verse 173, let thy hand help me. Verse 175, let my soul live. God, there's such a distance between you and me. I'm just praying that you'll allow that distance to be bridged. But there's something even deeper here in this final section of this lengthy poem. In the very last verse of his psalm, he admits something. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. So God, I'm going to close my poem. I'm going to close my psalm by admitting I've gone astray. So I'm praying that you would seek your servant. He doesn't even realize it. He doesn't even have a complete Old Testament, let alone a full Old and New Testament. He doesn't have any idea. But when he said that in the last verse of this lengthy chapter, he just locked on to a New Testament hope, even though he's in an Old Testament chapter. Because someday the good shepherd will give his life for the sheep. Someday the Son of Man will come to seek and to save that which was lost. Someday the complaint of another Old Testament man named Job, that complaint will be addressed. Here's Job's complaint. Neither is there a daysman, an umpire, a mediator betwixt us. There's nobody between me and God that can lay one hand on God and the other hand on me and bring us together. That was Job's complaint. And that same Old Testament man named Job, this was his prayer. Oh, that I knew where I might find him. I love God, I worship God, I make sacrifices to God, I pray to God, but I just wish I knew where I could find him, that I could approach him, that I could come even to his seat. That's the prayer of the Old Testament. And the complaint of the Old Testament is found in Job, which, by the way, happens to be the oldest book in the Bible chronologically. The opening volley of the Old Testament is, I wish I could find him. And there's nobody between us. There's nobody that can put one hand on God and one hand on me and help me out. And this psalmist has the same longing. Verse 174. I have longed for thy salvation, O Lord. To which I say, hang on, great men of the Old Testament. Because salvation is is coming. <laughs> the Hebrew alphabet ends with the letter Tav. It all comes down, it all ends with the sign that they use to mark a covenant. It all ends. The Hebrew alphabet ends with the cross. There's no better place to finish because all of Scripture and all of our hope just happens to end at the cross. I'm grateful for the Word because the Word showed me who could be my daysman, who could lay one hand on God and one hand on sinful me and bring us together. And His name is Jesus. And I'm so grateful that His Word, the written Word, revealed the living Word in my life. I close this Old Testament study with a New Testament Scripture. Paul said, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. They don't understand it. They don't want to look at it. In fact, they mock it and malign it. Late night comedians make a mockery of the Lord Jesus and his death. It's awful. It's disgusting to me. But while they don't understand it and they will mock it, the preaching of the cross may be to them foolishness. But to those of us that have experienced the forgiveness of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that rugged cross is the power of God. And when you get down to the end of everything, 
History hinges on it. It all comes down to the cross. I'm so thankful for the Word because the Word showed me the path to the cross. Would you lift up your hands and your voice in thanksgiving to our beautiful Savior? Would you just thank Him? For the word that revealed the cross to you. For the word that revealed the gospel to you. For the word that revealed the Savior to you. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross. And thank you, Jesus, for the word. There's nothing like this word. There's nothing that can stand up to this word. There's nothing more powerful than this word. I worship you. I worship you, Jesus. Oh, I thank you, God. Oh, I thank you, God. I thank you, God. Sore batela roto koshesa.